Welcome to another edition of the Snap No Tap podcast, and I'm indoors today because we've had torrential rain, which is much needed for the since like two o'clock in the morning, and I'm pretty upset, and I'll get into the reason why, but the first thing I got to mention is my upcoming seminar in Naperville College is actually the 21st. It's the third Sunday. So last week, I think I said it's the third Sunday, the 20th. But it's the 21st, which is still the third Sunday. They haven't changed the the rotation of the days yet um, on our calendars, I don't think. We have to work on that. But, yeah, it's the 21st at 10 a.m., uh, North Central College, DuPage. Joe will always put the link information. And, uh, unfortunately, I was going to have one of my – students who lives in indiana come to it but he's got to work he was a previous guest on the show uh justin brown the firefighter emt extraordinaire uh martial artist uh bon vivant and uh you name it he's done it so unfortunately he won't be able to make it but he will be coming to chicago uh, to my place for a few days in september for some training, so that's good. And we are going to have a special guest, another one of one of these people that Joe, see, Joe has this, it's like animal magnetism, man. Uh, whereas I attract predominantly like mosquitoes and sometimes flies. He he attracts these awesome guys that have crazy to me things, such as the firefighter that puts out forest fires and trackers so we have another tracker extraordinaire coming up uh, on today's show but let's get to everybody's waiting to see joe cardinal's face joe pop up on the screen well hello everybody hello out there on internet land yeah i know it's always good to have a good build-up you know you don't want to lead with me right away because then it's all downhill so i appreciate it's good good broadcasting on your point there to uh kind of watch wgn in the mornings I, i learned a lot (laughs) <laughs> Very good. I was on the Bozo show on WGN back in the day. So, you know, that that's probably where I peaked, honestly, right there. Uh, I didn't get to play the Bozo buckets, though, but uh, that was still, you know, I actually did meet the original Bozo. So that's one of my claims to fame. So did you guys have Bozo? Like, no. And I mean, professionally, a Bozo. Not, I know you had a lot of Bozos in Cleveland, but... Yeah, no, we but we were the forefront of, uh, like, the nighttime television scary movie slash horrible movie hosts. We had a gentleman named Ernie Anderson, but went by Goulardi. He started it all. And then it became the ghoul in Cleveland. Out here, you have Zvenguli. They're all takeoffs from the original, which was uh, 
Ernie Anderson, and he left Cleveland for riches in Hollywood. He was a very famous voice actor who probably his, well, people are too, he's passed away several years ago, but his big thing was he would do ABC television promos, and one of them was like, it's the love boat. He would do the introduction every week of what, you know, the coming up episodes. And they all started at a television show, a television station called WJW, local CBS. And probably its most famous alum was the legendary Tim Conway of McHale's Navy, Disney, and Carol Burnett fame, who started on that channel. Uh, followed Ernie Anderson out to Hollywood. And as they say, the rest is history. Tim Conway, one of the funniest men that ever lived. And they had another gentleman there who I actually met once, Big Chuck, Chuck Shadowski, who ended up hosting the show after Gillardi left. It was the Hulahan and Big Chuck show. And it became Big Chuck and Little John. They wanted him out in Hollywood. And he was just a homespun Cleveland guy that said, nope, not leaving, staying in Cleveland, and he spent his whole career in Cleveland. I think he's still alive, but he would be way up there in age. But, yeah, so Cleveland had a, had a lot of that stuff. Cleveland had the very first what you would call uh, like talk show, okay? That all started in, in Cleveland as well. And, uh, yeah, Cleveland was a – there's a lot of firsts in Cleveland and also a lot of firsts in Chicago. For sure, for sure. Uh, and like I said, you may have had the first talk show, but Chicago gets Oprah, so I think we win. You know, you know my one of my exes, her best friend, worked for Oprah for many years. Oh, really? That's kind of cool. Yeah, I used to drive by the Harpo Studios all the time downtown. So That's I don't where think... she worked. Wow. Hi, Roseanne, in case you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to our guest. Um, I'm really excited to have Matt on, Matt Corandino. Uh, I met him... Uh, originally uh, last summer, I think when I went with Dwayne, I retook my standard tracker class. I came back with Dwayne, who was unfortunately couldn't make uh, this podcast this morning because I, I know he's a big fan of Matt and Carmen's. Uh, but Matt was one of the head instructors there and just a fantastic instructor, great background. And he is the owner and, uh, you know, he and his wife are the owner instructor of Caribbean Earth Skills. Say it again. Caribbean Earth Skills. Okay. So that's down in St. Croix, which is kind of an interesting take on things. So like, you know, I'm familiar with the tracker school and things in North America, but they're, they're doing things down in the Caribbean or the tropical area, which I'm sure is a completely different take. But anyways, welcome, Matt. Thanks for joining yeah, the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. You know, I got to be honest, I've, I've never heard of Ernie Anderson, but I did watch Bozo the Clown as a kid from time to time. So I guess Joe wins on that one right there. <laughs> what can you do? Now, I'm, I'm it's nice clear. to have. It, I just wanted to add that it's nice to have somebody that looks like Matt today on Sunday of all days. <laughs> I um, feel we can't, we can't talk about religion. That's one of the things that we never talk about on a survival trip. We got a bunch of things that we just we don't go there. So I won't go there. Yeah, I good. Though I was close. We don't go there either. Politics or religion? Not really. No. That see, you just hit on another one. We don't talk about. Just never talk about politics kind of it's kind of an important rule when you got a bunch of hungry people sitting around a fire 
yeah, good point. Yeah, people are on edge. It's kind of cool to get to see. Is this that? Is that your um, like your when your porch there? I see it looks like surfboards. Uh, yeah, this is our, this is kind of the front room of our of our house here, and that's some of our surfboard quiver right there. My wife and I are. Uh, that's actually part of the reason why we're in the Caribbean. We wanted to be somewhere where we could uh, be in a forest or like a forested area, but also be close to the ocean. And because the West Coast of the United States, the water's so much colder, we didn't want to have to uh, have wetsuits for surfing all the time. So, yeah, this is definitely one of our big passions is surfing and being in the water. And that was a big attraction for us to to move down here. I mean, oh, than all the great things about living in the Caribbean. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Now, do you guys also teach uh, surfing as part of your teaching? <sighs> you know... Now, you know, we, we kind of refrain from teaching the surfing just because it's kind of hard to, uh, I'm not good at teaching it. I just get, I get too focused on the waves. It's one of those things that just, ah, I, it, it takes over my whole brain and my whole life. We can't talk about surfing because I won't stop talking about it. <laughs> um, and that's why I don't usually teach it because, yeah, it just, I, I get too caught up in wanting to do it to actually teach it very well. But we definitely have extra boards for, we have, we actually the first students that ever came down to learn primitive skills were both surfers. And that was actually a reason why they wanted to come because they knew we were surfers and they knew that if there was going to be waves that they'd be able to go and surf and they could drop whatever else they were doing and, and go and surf, which is what surfers do. It's an addiction. You'll like ruin your whole life for the sake of surfing. If, you, if the waves are good and it's true, you totally will give up everything else for the surf. My wife is making a smirk right now as she, deals with the chores because she's she knows that i will ruin my life for surfing and this is my daughter hello hello it's my daughter eily um Hi, so yeah you were saying we we live in the caribbean we live on the island of saint croix which is in the uh, and there's my son there you go up oh, not covering his ears pretending hey, like hey. he can't hear me um, Hi, son. yeah we live in uh in saint croix which is in the u.s virgin islands which is about uh thousand miles east and south of florida wow and, i didn't uh, realize it was that far yeah yeah it's, uh, it's neither did i the first time i came i i actually the first time i came here was on vacation i had a, a a um a plane ticket that i needed to use and i've been a reggae fan for a long time and i saw that there was one of my favorite bands was having a concert and i was like well i'll go there first and then bounce around the Caribbean and through around the Virgin Islands and I planned on bouncing around to a bunch of different islands but uh St. Croix really um yeah it really gathered my attention I ended up spending most of the time here made friends with the people who used to own the camp that we run and um started teaching I actually came back the second time with my wife to teach a summer camp which got canceled the day before that we showed up and the previous owners of, of the camp that we own now offered us, well, they asked us if we wanted to do a, a survival class because they knew that we, were, that we were survival teachers in the States at the time. And we said, yeah, that would be fun. And then they let us stay for free. So we, we felt obligated to run the class every year. So because we were obligated to do it, we did this class every year. And that's how we ended up deciding that St. Croix would be a good place for us to move to. The the owners of the of the camp previously decided to sell and they were willing to hold the mortgage for us and 
Um, so we jumped on it uh, as as a cool opportunity for us to be able to move somewhere really beautiful that we didn't ever think we'd have the opportunity to move to. And that's how we ended up here in St. Croix. Now, let me add, because I'm going to actually, unfortunately, have to bug out early today. So there are some questions that I know Joe will cover all the tracking questions once I'm off air and I can watch this podcast uh, later. But I know that, well, I don't know much about the uh, Caribbean. I've never been out that way or the Caribbean. I know that there's an argument between the proper uh, pronunciation, uh. but all <laughs> right. <laughs> but the weather, you know, we hear every year, you know, sometimes it's just tragic, like uh, monsoons or, you know, hurricanes mm-hmm. or this or that. I'd like to have, I mean, have you encountered like severe weather like that? Well, 2017, um, there were two storms. Hurricane Irma passed about, well, the, the edge of, see, because hurricanes are relatively small storms, and the hurricane force winds, which is 90 miles per hour or greater, uh, sorry, 70 miles per hour or greater, is uh, the, the, the hurricane force winds were about five miles north of us. But in St. Thomas, which is about 40 miles away, it was uh, category five. So that's like that storm was about 230 mile per hour sustained winds. And so I was here for that and got the camp all prepared for the storm and and got all of our stuff kind of put away. And then uh, my brother's wedding was the week after that. And I decided to put some things back together went to my brother's wedding and then there was another storm that um that popped up on the radar and you know when it first popped up it was only forecast to be a category 1 so i was like ah eh, no big deal and i didn't change my flight right then and like 2 days before the storm got here it jumped to a category 3 and then it jumped to a category 5 and that was uh, hurricane maria and i know you hear a lot about how it damaged uh, puerto rico and a lot of the damage in Puerto Rico, there was definitely a lot of wind damage, but most of it was actually flooding because it's a much larger island. It can catch more rain. So the rivers swole up and, it, and, and a lot of flooding was the main damage that they had there. Whereas here it was the wind. We had 243 mile per hour sustained winds here wow. and, and gusts in the 270 um, mile per hour range. And we got really lucky. Our house, there was like an eddy of wind around our house because even our gutters I mean, I'm looking at my gutters right now. They're actually still intact. Um, so somehow our house was spared and the camp was relatively spared, but it smashed the west end of the island. It, it was like, you know, we, it, we don't lose the leaves unless on the trees unless it's very, very dry. And there was not a leaf left on any tree. And there was a tree that was in all the trees in our, not all the trees, but many of the trees in our yard were down. And there was actually a good sized tree, you know, like maybe six, eight inches across that I don't even know where it came from. It just landed in the yard and I had to, you know, cut it up and clean it up. And that was about, it was about six weeks of chainsaw and tractor. So I just cutting with the chainsaw all day, making these big piles and then pushing things to the margin. And that was six weeks of doing that all day, every day. Um, and then it took me about three years to build back all the, all the buildings that got damaged. Um, I still have one more building to re to rebuild, but it's not a, it's not an income producer. So yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting thing when you move to the Caribbean, you know, other places you could, 
other places you can get insurance, but here you really can't get storm insurance. If you can get this insurance, you basically don't need it. It's that expensive. And it's interesting to move somewhere where you know for a fact that there's going to be a catastrophic storm within the next 15 to 20 years. It's just a guarantee. I mean, climatologically, it's, it's, uh, the average is once every 25 or 27 years uh, for a major hurricane. And um, it was 28 years between, between the two, the two last storms. This is how I guess. Thank you for interrupting. I see, buddy. Sorry, it's part of raising children. They have something that has something that is so bad. Your mom's talking to you. I see. Push it onto the chocolate. Will you hold it and it? I got it. I got it. Show your mom. Sorry about that. Um, No, that's cool. So yeah, uh, it's definitely a way of life here, and um, it's a big part of when I when I do the building, I try to. I have a mill and so I try to use all um I try to use as much local windfall and trees as I possibly can and that helps keep the cost down and also um you can kind of go two ways you can build something with concrete and make it so that it's somewhat bomb proof or you can go the way that I've gone which is make it so that it's um I can take the roofs off of our cabin it's it's a uh, it's like a sailcloth roof. So I can just take it off and then the wind blows right through it and then the roof doesn't get blown off and then I can repair it pretty easily. So yeah, I'm going, I go the cheap route rather than the concrete route. Cause yeah. Cause I, I guess, cause I'm cheap. No, it's cause I'm into rebuilding things. That's what it is. I like building stuff. Well, are there, uh, and excuse me for my ignorance because I, I again, I don't know much about that or really I know nothing of that area. Are there like high rise, so to speak, condo or apartments or something in? No, we don't have any. We don't have any high rises at all on the island. I I know that there was a push to um uh, to allow that with the zoning law. Sorry, with the um with the building codes to change the building codes to allow certain high rises to be built if they were built in a certain manner. But they decided not to do that. So. I mean, there's buildings that are maybe up to three or four uh, floors, but nothing taller than that. I'm sure that if somebody had enough money to build one, um, that that might happen. But it's not something that you see commonly. It's not something you see at all here. Um, So of the three U.S. Virgin Islands, St. Croix gets the least amount of tourism. Uh, The St. John and St. Thomas get the lion's share of the tourism. Part of the reason is because they're they're in the chain of islands where the next island is five miles over. And that's really popular. People can come to those islands and jump on a ferry and be at the next island in 15 minutes. And we're further south. So that affects our, our tourism, which is actually part of the reason why we came here. Um, but really the only island, I mean, Puerto Rico and the other larger islands, there will be high, high rises because the amount of people who live there, they just need it for space. But no, there's no, there's no big high rises here. And, um, you know, we don't have any branded um, resorts here. There's no Sandals Resort or any of the, you know, big name resorts that you see, which, again, was another reason why this uh, island was attractive to us. Um, So it's not that there's not development here. It's just that this is a little bit uh, more of a rural kind of feeling. You know, there's definitely some farms here. Not a lot of islands like St. Thomas is uh, too populated and too steep to really have hardly any 
food grown on the island, whereas, you know, food is grown here. Um, and that's really common in a lot of islands. Uh, even though you could grow a lot of food, there's not a lot of food grown in these, in these islands. Um, but, but yeah, it's a little bit more agricultural here and a little bit more, I don't know what else to call it besides rural because we're really dependent on tourist dollars. There's also, uh, there, well, it's closed now, but there was a huge refinery that was built here. When they developed the Virgin Islands, they figured that St. John was National Park, and that was the development plan for that, was to keep it natural, wild. Uh, St. Thomas was kind of more the commerce people, you know, it's people historically had come there because it has a great harbor. And then St. Croix, they made it an industrial island, but there's no oil to be found here. So that's not a long-term plan. So there's definitely development, but not not high rises and not any, you know, like, uh, yeah, no branded resorts or anything like that. And we got just enough wild lands for me to stay sane. <laughs> Do you have restaurants and movie yeah, theaters? Definitely. definitely. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's actually pretty quaint, especially our end of the island. Um, it, it it's we're not loaded with restaurants on this end, but um in Christianstead, there's a boardwalk where there's a number of different restaurants and bars and whatnot. And then, uh, yeah, we're on the, we're on the sleepy, we're on the rough side of the Island. They say, um, I like it better to be honest with you. It's definitely more local, more West Indian local, um, as opposed to people like myself who've moved here from, from afar. And, uh, yeah, it's part of what I appreciate about living here is living close to the local population. And we stay here, um, other than when I go up to New Jersey to teach where I met Joe, um, we're here year round. We're, we're pretty committed to living here and to being here as, you know, as much as we can. So then you would be considered what an expat they call that? Yeah. Well, you know, the typically people will call me a statesider here. Um, I guess people don't use the term expat because it we're, it's a U.S. territory. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny because you mentioned not talking about politics, but it's really interesting living in a territory because if I lived in a foreign country, I could vote for president. But because I live in a U.S. territory, I can't vote for president. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, 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 I know well, there goes your hope for running, Joe. You were hoping for uh, one vote. I was his first vote. Yeah, see, you blew it. Uh, well, how are you? How, how far are you from now? Oh, no, forget it. I, I would think American Samoa is on the other side. That's in the Pacific. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, the only, there's there so we're we're about 90 miles from Puerto Rico which is oh. the next territory that's close by and then there's a very little known there's there's an island off the coast of Haiti that the United States also owns um called Navassa Island which it was actually purchased because there's tons of bird guano there and back this was in the 1800s it was purchased it was really it it was won by force um in the world war of 1812 for the sake of all that guano to use the guano to make gunpowder. And now it's, it's a territory, but nobody lives there. They never let anybody develop there because they wanted the bird poop for, for gunpowder. Um, but yeah, so those are the only territories in this region of the world is Navassa Island, which nobody knows about um, Puerto Rico and then the U S Virgin islands. And then all the other um, territories, U S territories are in the Pacific. So you're, how far from let's say Bermuda? You, that would be closer to the mainland of America. Yeah, we're 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 much further out. Um, if you if you if you think about the Caribbean as like Florida is here and the Caribbean's like this square, 
yeah. right? The base of Florida is here. And so Caribbean's a square. We're all the way out here at the corner. Whereas, you know, Puerto Rico's here and then, and then, and then the Bahamas are up here above that kind of square that the Virgin Islands makes. We're actually closer to South America. We're about three or 400 miles closer to, to Venezuela than we are to the United States. Interesting. So, See, I, I've known a lot of Puerto Rican people. I've dated, well, my high, my high school, my high school sweetheart, she was Puerto Rican, but I've, I know I've known a lot of people from, from Puerto Rico. Cleveland had a, well, that's where I'm originally from. Cleveland had a large Puerto Rican population, and mm-hmm. uh, and there's there's quite a few in Chicago that I've you know Chicago has a uh, Humboldt Park area in in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of Puerto Ricans there, so I I'm familiar with them, and I'm I'm familiar with their uh, somewhat their culture and their their mm-hmm. their food, which I which I love. Uh, yeah, we have a lot. Of, we have a lot of Puerto Ricans here as well. Uh, call them Crucian Ricans, uh, especially a lot of people <laughs> from Vieques. Vieques and Culebra are two islands that are off the off the coast, just a little ways off of uh, Puerto Rico. And um, Vieques was vacated half of the island because the U.S. Uh, the military wanted to use it as a bombing range. And so a lot of the people who were forced off of Vieques came to St. Croix because that was this would have been in the 50s and 60s. And sugar was still a, a, an industry here at that time. And it was in Vieques as well. So a lot of people came from Vieques and there's quite a few families, Crucian Rican families. So you hear Spanish spoken quite a bit. Um, lots of people flying the Puerto Rican flag. Um, yeah, you know, I only been to, uh, to Puerto Rico a couple of times and it was for teaching uh, primitive skills for some friends of mine that I met, the same place that I met Joe. Um, but yeah, it's definitely also a, a very strong presence of Puerto Ricans here uh, as well as any major city in the U.S. is going to have a pretty large Puerto Rican population. You seem to be a very knowledgeable. I, I res, you're a very knowledgeable person about where you live. That I'm impressed, I'm... Well, <laughs> no, it impresses me because you know I know a lot of people who really don't you know that live around here. You know the greater Chicagoland area that don't even go to Chicago, don't really know much about the history of that. And you know I was I'm big on. Uh, well, my heart's always going to be with Cleveland. That's my hometown. That's always <laughs> going to be my favorite. But I love Chicago. I you know this area. So I like people like yourself who immerse themselves in the culture. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I try to tell these folks that, uh, uh, you know, that as a single guy, older guy, I meet a lot of women that all they want to do is travel, 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 travel. That's all they want to do. I'm like, you know what? There's probably interesting things within 30 minutes of where you live or so, an hour of where you live mm-hmm. that you've never even investigated why do you need to travel all over when there's so much in your zone? And it sounds to me like you've capitalized on that. You know, you you got to know these islands and and the, and the surrounding uh, locales, which is I think fan. I, I think that's great. You know what's interesting too is that I I never um, cared about learning about the local history anywhere that I lived until I started to get into primitive skills. Um, uh, part of the skill set that we teach when we're teaching people how to survive with nothing is awareness and a big part of that awareness. So you have like the in the moment awareness where, you know, if you imagine, if you want to bring it to martial arts, you have the moment where you're actually getting punches, live punches thrown at you. And you have that awareness where you're opening yourself to the, okay, I got to dodge right now, or I got to counter or put up a block. And then you have, the awareness that's that might be compared to training where you're 
where, where you're kind of building a, a base of knowledge. If I keep throwing this punch or throw this kick like that, or I do this throw this time, every time I'm building that knowledge base in martial arts, what's kind of the same with survival. You have the in the moment awareness where if I want to catch an animal, I have to be listening and be moving silently as much as possible. And then I have the foundational part where I need to know how, what are the types of animals that are here? What are the types of plants that are here? And so building that base of knowledge um, for, for the uh, survival skills is actually what got me interested in learning about the human history places, the cultural history of, of, of places. You know, when I study history, not just here, but, you know, especially here, you, you don't, it's, it's all human history. You don't, there's not much natural history to read about the Caribbean because it was a place that was just exploited. It wasn't, nobody cared to learn about the natives who lived here in this Island in particular. Um, So yeah, that it's, it's, you wouldn't think that learning about nature would guide you towards learning about people, but it, it ended up actually sparking my interest in history. Um, it's not something that I paid attention to in school very much, but (laughs) turns out I'm actually interested in it. Who'd have thunk it? Well, guys, unfortunately for me, who'd have thunk it, but my ride, the pickup truck ready for me to load furniture is, is here. They're here. Mm. So I'm going to have to bail. I thought they were coming at 1130, but they're coming now. So you're an interesting fellow, Matt. I hope we keep in touch. I'm actually excited to watch this podcast later. Um, because I know Joe's going to, Joe's so into tracking. He thinks so much of you guys, all the instructors, and also the other participants. So what, what they have going on in New Jersey seems to be an amazing program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I look forward to hopefully meeting some of you guys, and you in particular one day in person, um, if, if at all possible, probably, you know, it's a pipe dream, um, but you never know. Mm-hmm. But. Joe, keep up with the good show. I'm going to X out of here. Guys, I'll talk to you later. Nice to meet you, Nice to meet you. Now we can start talking about Tony. So, (laughs) all right. Wait, I'm not out yet. Wait. (laughs) Bye bye. (laughs) Uh oh. Accounting? Is that what we're going to talk about? Let's, I hope not. Maybe. I guess (laughs) it's important. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's start back at the beginning. So, um, you know, where did you grow up? Uh, you know, what did you do? What were you interested in? Those kind of things. And how did that, you know, get into the earth skills? So I grew up in Virginia, in Southern Virginia, in Norfolk. Um, so not really the, the most nature connected place that you could think of. Um, and, you know, I, I, what was I interested in? Nothing. Um, <laughs> as a, as many uh, um, American young people are kind of the same thing. You, you don't really, there's not much, um, yeah, there's not much variety to the things that are, that are suggested to you as a, as a young person in this, in this country. So I, I can't say that I was interested in much of anything, except we would always camp instead of staying in hotels when we did family trips. Um, I don't think it would have happened if we had more money, but we, we were poor. So, um, every time we went on a a family trip, we would camp and it was just car camping, you know, just park and pull out the tent and pop it up. And I don't know, somewhere, somewhere in high school, I remember going on a, a camping trip and I remember just hanging out by a fire with my friend and looking around in the woods 
and you know there's no car sound there's no sounds of the city I just remember looking around and being like wow I really I really like this I really enjoy this and then um that kind of pushed me towards uh gravitate I gravitated towards friends who were into backpacking and so I started kind of getting a little bit more into really being in nature as opposed to just setting up a tent somewhere and camping in a campground and so I got into to backpacking and I I went to college in um in southern Pennsylvania at a at a college called Shippensburg and Shippensburg when I was going there, it was just a typical school, although now they have a very robust backpacking and outdoor guiding program. They actually have a program for that. When I was going there, there was nothing like that. But now there's a there's a, a hiking club and there's and there's actually, like I said, a program for for becoming a, a wilderness guide, which, man, I would have loved that. I would have <laughs> might have stayed in school. Um Anyhow, I got really into to hiking because the Appalachian Trail was right near there. And I just kind of got more and more into it. And I and I ran into a friend. I was home for spring break. And my friends and I, in the wintertime, we would go camping. And we would build these enormous fires where you had to sit like 10, 15 feet away from the fire. And we were like, we're so hardcore. We're wintertime camping. And I ran into this friend who I hadn't seen in, in a long time. And I was telling him how much of a badass I was for <laughs> camping in the wintertime. And he was like, you know, I have this book of this guy who basically goes into the woods naked and survives. And he handed me one of Tom Brown Jr.'s books. It, he handed me two of them. It was the, the Field Guide to Wilderness Survival. And the other one was a, is a book called Awakening Spirits. And he was like, oh, you know, well, maybe I'll get this other book for my brother. It'll be a better one. And he wasn't actually going to leave those books. And then um, he he took off the next day for something and he didn't come back. And I never saw him since then. And he left Tom's books and I read those books and I was like, wow, this is really, this is really cool stuff. I, I, I get into that. And so then through backpacking and, and just spending time in nature, each time I would go out, I'd have this book and I was like, oh, let me try this throwing stick thing, or let me try this stalking thing. And i built a little shelter and kind of just dabbled in it for about, for about four years, just dabbling here and there. And I read more and more of Tom's books and I was living in California at the time. A girlfriend of mine was going to school there. Um, I was living in the Redwoods and um, I remember she was like, when are you going to take a class? And I was like, oh, I don't know, maybe next year sometime. And she was like, well, when I graduate next year, I'm taking a class. And then I was like, well, I'm going to go this year then. So just to beat her to the punch, I came to, to, to New Jersey. And I think it was about the second or third day of the class. It was like, okay, this is, this is it for the rest of my life. And I, I knew, I knew without a doubt whatsoever that I was going to spend my life working with these primitive skills, making this my life. I had no idea that I would be teaching there. In fact, I, I used to be, I tend to be the type of person who, who I, I let my imagination run away with me sometimes. And I remember forcing myself not to have expectations when I came to take the class. I remember I had a moment where I was like, man, wouldn't it be cool if if I got really into this stuff and then I started working at the school and then I was like, okay, no, that's ridiculous. That's fantasy. And I actually 
for a change for me was able to just get rid of that expectation. And lo and behold, it turns out I got really into the things and I ended up teaching there. You know, it's funny because I remember I took a class and then I volunteered the next class. And I was, it was towards the end of the week and I worked my butt off the entire week. And, I, and it was the first time that I sat down to relax at all. There was a hammock set up next to the sweat lodge that was there. And it was literally the first time the entire week that I relaxed. And I laid down in this hammock and I was kind of looking towards the house and there was an old barn there. And Tom, who's the, the head honcho, was walking up to the barn to do his lecture from the house. And I was just watching him idly. And he stopped at the barn and he looked right at me. And he made eye contact at me, stared at me really hard. And I was like getting really nervous. Like, oh man, I should be doing something right now. I'm being lazy. <laughs> and I got up and I just started doing something. Years, I mean, it was, might've been two or three years later when I was a caretaker or an intern, I was talking with him and he was like, I, I had just mentioned that, like seeing him and, and he was staring at me. And I, I was saying it to him like, oh, you were staring at me because I was being lazy. And he was like, no, I was staring at you because I knew you were going to be around the school for a while. And, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that he teaches. So part of me was just thinking, oh, he's just saying that because he's trying to get me excited about being able to have that kind of awareness. But turns out he was right. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah so i i got i got pretty into it um and decided that i was going to spend my whole life teaching uh primitive skills and never really never really thought about teaching at the tracker school um i just kind of dove into it um my parents were uh they were tentatively supportive you, know, you can imagine i i, I was I got in trouble in high school and didn't care what anybody said about, you know, being suspended and expelled and all that. I mean, I, I was able to get over that and go to college and all that, but it never, it never felt like anything I was going to do. And like most parents, they were expecting me to do a traditional, you know, get a job, earn money and, you know, do the whole American dream. Um, and I remember coming back from that first class and they were like, well, what now? Cause I was just carrying on about how amazing it was. And I remember it was really defeating for me. And I was just like, no, this is it. And they were like, no, really what, what now? You're not <laughs> going to make money doing this. And I was just like, I don't care. You know, I don't, I don't care if I don't make money doing this, which they were used to that kind of reaction. Like, okay, great. Here we go again. So anyhow, they, they allowed me to stay in their house and, and, you know, I, I would, I would, do a job for however long I needed to, to earn the money to take another class, quit the job, take the class and come home and practice until I needed to get a job again, do the same thing over again. And then um, got hired as an intern at the school, which doesn't actually pay you any cash. <laughs> you do earn free classes. You can sell those classes, but I, I just did it to take more classes. And then, um, yeah, I guess I did that. Then I was a caretaker. And then I remember I, I came down to St. Croix on vacation 
because I had an ugly breakup and I basically came here just to get away from life <laughs> as best as I could. And I came back and I got hired um, like a month after coming back from, from St. Croix that first time. And I remember my mom was like, they're paying you now. I was like, yeah, they're paying me. Thank goodness. I can't believe it finally worked out. Um, so they were supportive, but amazed that it actually worked out. Um, and you know, even if I didn't end up teaching at, at the tracker school, I, this is, this is what I was going to be doing with my life, which most people start a school and take 10 years, struggle through it. And then after 10 years, they either quit or their school gets enough notoriety to kind of scrape along. Um, but I guess I was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time to get a job teaching, um, for Tom. I'm assuming that your listeners, if they've heard some of your podcasts, have heard you talk about, about Tom and, and his whole, his whole history, but, um, he's a best-selling New York times, best-selling author, and he's got 16 books in print. I think he's written 16 books and 14 of them are still in print. So that's a pretty good, it's a pretty good, um, record for an author to have a book that's in print for 20 plus years his one book has been in print the tracker has been in print for 44 years now that's pretty that's pretty impressive so so to be able to work for somebody like that is is huge because um when i teach here i usually get five to ten students which is really amazing but when you have the opportunity to teach to 50 to 100 people it makes you much better at teaching and so uh, I, I've been really fortunate to get to teach uh, for Tom and to teach in a, in a setting like that because it just pushes you. You learn from everybody else's mistakes. Um, somebody makes a mistake that you would never have thought of, and now your knowledge is pushed further. Um, so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a wild ride um, just being able to, to – to work for somebody who has a, a reputation like Tom does. Well, it's, it's also kind of cool. Cause you, you probably have, you know, from like a student's perspective, he, he's still pretty remote to me. Like I really don't know him as a person, but like, yeah. it, you know, kind of what's kind of cool over time is eventually you really get, you get to know him. Like, like I know my coach, Tony is kind of a friend and a person, you know, he's no longer some kind mm-hmm. of celebrity. He's kind of, I've kind of, gone past that you know where it's like oh i just he's just this guy i know who happens to be able to do these awesome things you know and so it's kind of it's, it's always kind of cool i imagine to like a certain point when you become in that inner circle and get to get hear the inside stories and, and get perspectives that you know you can't get from just taking the classes or reading the books so that's got to be kind of enlightening well one of the things that um so tom has a has a mixed reputation most of his reputation is very strong because of his his ability i mean his ability to track is pretty impressive i've only gotten to live track meaning that he wasn't setting out tracks for me i've i've tracked with him plenty of times where he was setting out the tracks picking them on purpose but there's only been a couple times where i went tracking with him where it was um where it was like actually following a person at the time. And the one time he was running, I mean, he was running after this person and I could barely see the tracks at all. It was in a thick area where it was like bushes. And so you could sort of see a few places where somebody had gone through and pushed the bushes to the side. I mean, he wasn't sprinting because an old guy, but I mean, he was literally running 
after this after this person like behind them and it was really impressive to see so he has a, a reputation on the one hand that's that's like really positive but he has this negative reputation and the negative reputation is because he does not turn off that teacher so you might get to know him but it took probably 10 years of getting to know him to where I could, you know, I want to say that I could took 10 years to get to where I could tell the difference between, Oh, he's teaching now. And Oh, okay. He's just hanging out. Um, he just doesn't turn off that way of being every time he's trying to talk to you. He's always trying to think of some way that he can, um, push your skills further and it can be really maddening to people you know when you just want to get an answer of should i order the freaking hamburger meat or not it's a pretty simple <laughs> yes or no answer it's like i don't need to be learning about tracking right now tom i just want to know if i need to buy this stupid thing but he can't turn it off so i would say that it's really been in the last two or three years that i've gotten to know him more personally and and honestly it, it's, it's actually amazed me more. I, you know, it, people hold him in this. I don't want to just say they have this high regard for him. He's got this, he's got this reputation as like a guru or as like a, uh, uh, you know, a spiritual leader of some sort. And I fully understand why that is, but to know him as a person, he's, it's like, he's not that, but he is at the same time. You know, I, 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 when you spend a time around a teacher for long enough, like you're saying, you start to see those human moments. And because he doesn't let people in to, to his, uh, as a friend, you know, he doesn't let people into, into his circle as a friend very easily. Um, a lot of people get jaded on that because you care for somebody and you want to get to know them better. Um, I guess I was jaded on it for a while and was thinking, well, okay, I, I don't want to be around him anymore because he doesn't care or because he doesn't. Yeah. I mean, you get the feeling that he doesn't care, but then over the last couple of years, I've kind of let go of that, of that need. And I've realized now like, Oh, he's cared the entire time, but he, you just can't, it's hard to see that as a student. Um, I don't see him as that spiritual guru or as that, that spiritual leader or as this larger than life personality. But then at the same time, when I watch him teach, it is mind blowing. So I've kind of vacillated between, like you're saying, you don't, you don't know him that well. And, and a lot of people don't know him that well. And it's because we hold him in this, in this light where he's a different type of person. Um, and, and I understand why that is because some of the things he's asking people to do, it's like, that can't, that's not possible. You just don't believe that it's possible. And then you start to see little bits of evidence like, oh, well, well maybe it's not possible in this setting, but in a specific setting, it, it's totally possible. And I guess I've just had too many coincidences happen where I'm like, okay, it's not a coincidence anymore. So I kind of, I kind of went through two curves of it where it was like, I don't really know this person and I feel like I'll never get to know this person. And then I was like, okay, I don't care if I don't know this person. 
And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow, maybe I do know this person pretty well. And, and then recently I've just been really blown away by his ability to teach. You know, a lot of people um, hold him in high regard because he's a tracker who's, I mean, he's an excellent, amazing tracker. People hold him in a high regard because of his survival skills. For me, I hold him in high regard because of his ability to teach. His ability to get students inspired and to get them to try things that they would never try before. I mean, I've seen, I've seen some stuff that like, really touched my heart. There was a class that we did in California, a standard class. And after the class, we were kind of milling around and Tom was hanging out with his son, Tommy, and they were just sitting there, have a conversation. And this student walked up to Tom and to Tommy. And he was like, you know, I have something to give you, but I don't want it to seem like strange or out of the blue. So I'm going to hand it to you first and then I'm going to explain what it's all about. And they were like, okay. And he pulled out a gun and he handed it to Tommy. And he said, this was my last gift to myself. I was going to go home and commit suicide because my life was not worth living. Jesus. And he said, I don't want to do that anymore because of what you, what you connected me to this week. And he's still around. He's still, he's still taking classes. He's still, um, yeah, he's still alive. <laughs> and, um, you know, you can't see things like that and not be affected. You know, when I saw that, I was like, okay, I'm in the right place. You know, it, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I won't say I don't know what's going on. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it, it's pretty intense. Um, getting to work at a place like that. And, and, and that's not, that's not an isolated incident. That's not a, uh, I'm not going to say that's happened a lot, that specific thing, because that's the only time that happened, but you see it in people's eyes a lot, especially at that first class where people come and there's a, there's a certain judgment. There's a certain, um, yeah, I don't know what else other word to use, but there's a certain judgment, a certain way of looking at the world. But then at the end of the week, it's like you see this person totally open and you see the judgment kind of fall away. And you can't experience that over the course of 10 years and not see it as like a type of miracle. So I totally understand why he has the reputation that he has. Um, and it's well-founded. You know, it's it's well earned reputation. You know, I'll just add to that. Just as a student, I've you know I've been there a few times now, but even I've gotten glimpses into seeing people's lives changed. Um, maybe not as profound as the you know the the guy with the gun, but you know I remember walking into camp, just coming back from the the bobs, and there was a girl who was kneeling in front of a fire. She just made her first fire, and she was weeping. You know, and you could tell this was like a a life goal, something she maybe thought she could never do. And I got to see that moment where she made that breakthrough, you know, and there's all these little things. I mean, I think you were there. I, God, I should have, I should have gone through my notes. I think this was last year. Oh no. Yeah. It was Cause it was Dwayne was there with me, but the guy who decided to sleep and it was, you know, he, he, the guy who volunteered to uh, sleep in the shelter overnight for the standard class. He was the guy. And then like, 
you know, he just, he had to read a poem to everybody, you know, the next morning. He was so moved by the experience because he did something, he pushed himself, you know, he did something that's going to be uncomfortable with, and it, it changed him to the point, you know, and he just, he just, like, it was interesting, he was a different person the rest of that week, and you know, his life is going to be different as a result of that, you know, and uh, yeah, that's, that's got to have a positive influence to see that you're working with something that, you know, it, it, it can impact people in that way. You know, well, so, you know, it, when, when people come, there's a lot of people who come because they read Tom's books and they're inspired by the, the, you know, I hate titles such as spiritual, but a lot of people come because they read the book and they see that there's a potential for a spiritual connection. Um, and then, or you have people who come because Tom has a good reputation and they want to learn primitive skills, want to learn how to survive with nothing. Or you have people who come and they want to learn tracking. Um, but whatever people come for, they're connecting to something that's goes much, much deeper than just anything that Tom is doing. In our modern society, we train the part of our mind that is only connected to things that we know well. We're training the part of our mind by, by, our, by our modern way of teaching. We train the part of our mind that can, that can only think, know things that it already knows. Because we have, we have different parts of our mind that are, that are activated by different things. And that's what we train. We train that analytical... Um, self-referencing part of our part of our mind and it becomes it, it's so continuous that we start to not notice that we're only training things that we already know that we already can look up that are a plus b equals c that are very compartmentalized please stop that leo sorry my son is making this banging noise in the in the on the door over here um, so we, we spend our, our, our formative years training this part of ourselves that's only connected to things that we've invented, things that we've created. And then whatever reason that you go to a place like the tracker school, and this, that's just one place where you can connect with that. All of a sudden you're connecting with something that's outside of yourself. It's outside of, of that a plus B equals C. To me, I see it as an ancient connection. It's we're connecting to our ancestral ancient roots. You know, humans have been on this world for, it depends on who you ask, but you know, hundreds of thousands to anywhere from hundreds of thousands to millions of years. And it's only in the last five or 600 years that we've switched to this logical way of being and i'm not saying that logic is bad i mean look at everything we've accomplished in in life it's pretty amazing to be able to talk to you right now from thousands of miles away um but we've kind of gone so far in that direction of that logical way of being we've lost the drive to be connected to something greater and when you go to a place that is trying to connect you to that to those ancient roots, you start to feel this connection that you never knew you had. For me, it, 
it was all of it. The tracking made me feel connected. The survival skills made me feel connected. And what Tom calls the spiritual training, which I see as just awareness. So the awareness training, that also made me feel this sense of connection. And I think that's why it affected that, that person that I told that story about. It's not like, it's not like it was therapy that this person could continue to come and stay at the school all the time and know that he wasn't going to need to sink back into his suicidal thoughts. He was connecting to something that he knew was going to be there all the time. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to, to describe what we're talking about right now. It's much easier to live it, to experience it. And, um, I think a lot of times when people go out into nature without any training, without any um, guidance at all, maybe they feel bits and pieces of that connection to nature, but it's, it's not continuous enough for them to, to feel like it's real. It feels like a coincidence to people um, or an isolated moment. But, you know, after teaching, after teaching I hate, I, I hate all the terms that are connected with it, survival, tracking, awareness. I mean, they don't really capture the essence of it. But after teaching it for a number of years, you start to see uh, the power of that feeling of connection. You start to see something deeper than just this is making a fire or this is an animal track. You start to, you start to feel that, that connection to something deeper. Um, it's a really powerful, it's a really powerful thing to be a part of. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's funny. Cause I mean, I do think, I mean, you can, you can, if you try and break apart the skills or the knowledge in separate little pieces, but really it all kind of weaves together. And, and it, like I said, it is this thing, you know, they overlap. And so, you know, just thinking about like, you know, John Young with the bird, you know, language and all, all these things, uh, there's all these different dimensions to, uh, kind of reclaim. I'm gonna like plagiarize what you guys. One of the phrases I really like from the school is like reclaiming your birthright. You know, we were born. I mean, the one gift we know we have is this earth. We were given. We were born into this world, and we've been given this. And you know, the modern world, for all its benefits, and you know, all the things that it's done and given us, it's it's taken a lot a lot of people away from that. You know, and we're disconnected. Or I have a friend who says we're denatured. You know, and so I think. Uh, uh, um, and he's the one who gave me the Tom Brown book and uh, back in the day. But uh, yeah, and that's why I think there's so many different aspects of ways of connecting with it and learning about it, you know, and they overlap um, that it is, it kind of does it a disservice to say, well, I'm just learning this or I'm just learning that, you know, it is kind of basically, I mean, in maybe simple you know, um, secular terms, you should be becoming a naturalist again, you know, a full spectrum naturalist, you know, because there's so much to it, you know, uh, and so there's just yeah, so many avenues to explore. And so trying to, you know, I'm looking at the ground at the tracks while I'm listening to the birds and I'm trying to feel connected, you know, there's all these different and uh, trying to find resources that I might build a fire with. And this is how you really become immersed in the natural environment. You know, I was thinking about when you said when people go out into nature, and I, you know, I obviously a lot of my life is like, you know, I'd go to a national park or something. You're very much a tourist, you know, you're kind of going there and looking, but you're not integrated into it. You're not living it. And so the more you can, uh, these skills can bring you to actually not just looking at it like it was in a museum, 
you know, through a pane of glass, but it's like, I'm going to go into it. You know, I'm going to be immersed in it. And that's what I think is one of the goals. And I, it's got to be healing on a lot of levels, you know, and, and just, yeah, just, you know, if you're, you're kind of not seeing hope for whether it's for yourself or for the, the world as it is, it's like, oh, yeah, these are the things that will get us back in the right direction. You know, I think that because of the way that we're that we're raised, the way that we are trained from the time that we're so young is we, we want a concrete answer. We want a, a fact that is immutable that is never changing that is going to stay firm and stay that way and the reality is is that that doesn't exist in the lived world everything changes in the lived world it might take a million years for that mountain to wear down to dust or it might explode its top and turn into dust in the in the, the course of a few hours everything changes every single thing in our whole world changes and and we our training in the modern society is i want something fixed i want something that's concrete that i know is not going to change and that doesn't that doesn't exist we create it we believe that a plus b equals c but sometimes something happens to b that we can't see and all of a sudden a plus b equals z we can't predict that and we can't we can't make that firm, but our training tells us that that is so. When we go out into nature, when we spend time in a, in, in a space that where our distractions are taken away from us, if we turn off the phone or leave it in the car, <laughs> and if we get rid of all the distractions and we go out into nature and we're actually immersed in it we start to feel like we're talking about this this connection that we have to nature and that connection that the fact that we are from the earth is concrete okay we're connected that that is that is that concreteness but it's not something that can be described it's not something that can be explained it's only something that can be lived and embodied. And so you can write it down in a book how you had this amazing experience and you can describe it in the most poetic words in the most powerful way you could possibly, you could possibly, you know, record that. And, and somebody could read it and feel inspired and maybe touch for a moment what, what you have touched, but then they've got to go out and experience it. And then it gets difficult because they can't just A plus B equals C. Oh man, I went to the national park and I didn't, feel that sense of connection we got to go without expectations first of all um you know I, I you brought up john young one of the people that uh i was lucky to teach with uh these last couple summers and he, he teaches a lot about bird language and a lot about tracking and he teaches about uh the bushman the kalahari kalahari bushman that he spends a lot of time with and uh the Kalahari Bushmen have this have this uh, way of looking at the world where would they see it as what they call first creation and second creation. And um, what they call first creation is is everything in the world that's apart from what people have created. Okay, so everything, including us as human beings, everything in the world that people have not created, 
Now, everything that people have created, this shirt, the computer, the phone, uh, you know, this bone arrowhead that I'm idly playing with, you know, that all of the things, whether they're primitive things like this basket or whether they're modern things like this phone, that's all part of second creation, what they call second creation. And in their worldview, every single problem, every problem in the world comes from second creation, comes from things that we've created. And if they have a problem, two people are arguing and they say, okay, you're, you're in second creation right now. We have to bring you into first creation and this problem will go away. And he asked them, John asked them, well, what about lions? That's not a problem. And they said, no, lion's not a problem because we listen to the birds and the birds tell us where the lion is. And we listen to the way the baboon calls and that tells us where the lion is. And the lion is only a problem if our minds take over and we're stuck in second creation and not listening. Then the lion will eat us. But it's second creation that made that happen. It's our, it's our logical mind, our analytical mind that made that happen. And you had mentioned a, a birthright. That's something that, that Tom mentions. And it's like, what in the world is a birthright? Well, it's, it's our birthright to be able to listen and to be connected to nature. Meaning we're all born with that ability. We're all born with that connection but we create a separation. We create that through our training, through our belief that A plus B always equals C. It's something that we're trained to do. And I, and I think that's why it's something that people can't explain. Like that woman, when she made the fire and she was weeping, like, why was she weeping? From a, from a logical point of view, she made fire. She could have done that with a lighter and it would have still kept her warm and kept her alive. But it was the fact that it came from somewhere deep within her. She made it herself. She got rid of the disconnection, the lighter that disconnected her from the fire. And there was a powerful connection there. She wouldn't be able to explain that the same way I can't explain why it touched her so deeply. You couldn't explain that, but you could experience it and you could be in that moment in that time. And, and I think hearing John explain that, that there's that there's that first creation, there's, there's all those things that we're already connected to in the world. And then there's the things that disconnect us. And that biggest thing that disconnects us is our belief. You know, our belief that there has to be this type of problem or that we have to have the lighter to start the fire or that we have to have a tent to make it through the night or, you know, the sleeping bag to keep us warm. We don't have to have those things. We do have to have a skill level though. Um, and that skill level is part of that connection. And that's why I love these skills so much. One of the things that we teach, so, so my wife and I teach classes when we're not in New Jersey, we teach classes here in the Virgin Islands. And um, if you go on our website, CaribbeanEarthSkills.com, you'll see our schedule. We actually had to put together a schedule together now. So there is a schedule. And we do classes that are like a one-day class where you might come and do basket making, or you might come and, and do bow making. Um, you might come and, you know, all of the different types of skills that we do that we could do in a day. And then we have week-long classes that are dedicated to either one specific skill or a number of skills. We have a class that is just spear fishing. We have a class that is a number of different skills, basket making, uh, spear fishing, bow making, arrow making. It's just a, a mix of skills. And then my, it's hard to call it my favorite, 
but I guess what I would call our most powerful classes are um, survival trips. We call it a survival quest because, you know, it's not a real survival situation. If somebody got injured or if there was something serious that happened, we would leave. We'd call the ambulance. We'd, you know, get the person to safety. So it's not a real survival situation. We're not actually crashing a plane in the middle of nowhere, but we call it a survival quest because we are questing towards a a space of connection. So we go out, we, we spend the first uh, three days in, in, at the camp here in our tents um, or in a cabin, if we want to spring for the cabin and we're working on um, it really depends on what people want to get out of it. So some people do make fishing hooks and line. Some people make bows and arrows. Some people make spears and throwing sticks. Some people make baskets for collection. So we, we make some tools and then we do some plant studies so that people have like a baseline. And then we go to a, a, spe- a spot on the island here that is, that is pretty wild. The one thing that we cheat on is water. Um, there's not a lot of water in that place that we go, but we go there so that we don't have other people, you know, walking up to us on our shelter. Like, so we don't have to deal with, um, with the distractions of, you know, hearing a vehicle or anything like that. So, um, we do have water stashed, but other than that, the students are gathering everything for themselves. We bring a, a little bit of food. We call it the winer's portion. Everybody has a winer inside them. And mm-hmm. so we, we bring just enough food to feed that feed that winer inside but all the other food is gathered by the students the shell the the students build the shelter they start the fires and for me as the as the i don't want to say teacher or guide i'll say facilitator is the person who's who's um making it happen (laughs) uh pushing the students gently uh, towards self-sufficiency. What I am after for the students is for them to let go of the mental distractions, um, to find that space of connection. And it can be really, really powerful. I've seen it go both ways. I've seen it where people just, they get there and immediately they're like, it's only four days. They wouldn't say that, but it's easy to see written all over their faces. Like they're just trying to get through with the four days and people still enjoy it. Those people still appreciate the time around the fire and everybody has that moment where they're like deeply connected to nature and they, and they feel a a powerful sense of oneness with the land around them. But really what I'm hoping for them to get is to stay in that space of connection to nature. And it's, I've, I've had groups where it was just, it was unbelievable. We, we had a group and, and nothing actually really happened that morning. We all went out to our different areas. I was, I was going out to, to this area where I had been hunting for deer. Somebody else went down to go fishing. A couple other people just went out to do gathering and a couple people just went to sit quietly and experience whatever happened. And it poured down rain and we all made our way back to the shelter and we got to the shelter and I just remember looking in everybody's eyes, not purposely. I wasn't 
thinking at the time, I need to look in everybody's eyes, but I just remember coming back and looking at everybody's eyes and nobody said anything for about two hours. We sat in the shelter while the rain poured down, the rain stopped and we started the fire again. And like, you could never explain what happened in that two hours. And we got back to to the camp here when the whole class was over. And, and that's another big part of the class is the integration. We don't, when we run that class, we don't just, uh, the class doesn't end and then people go home as, as soon as we get out of the woods. We come back to the camp here and we talk about everything that we learned, everything we experienced. Every single person mentioned that time in the rainstorm. N- nobody could actually say what had ha- why it was special. But every single person was like, you know, the other morning when it rained and we came back together and we just sat in silence. That was the most amazing two hours I've experienced. Some, one guy said it was the most amazing experience of his entire life. And it's like, we didn't even say anything. We didn't do anything. There was nothing happened. But there was just a powerful, powerful connection to each other and to the earth and to that moment. And it was, it was amazing. Um, and and that, was, that was probably one of the most powerful moments I've experienced. Now, the mo- one of the more recent classes that I've taken, or that I, that where I've you know taking a class, taking people with me was was we brought our homeschool kids with us, and we saw this as a rites of passage. It's a bunch of eleven-year-old kids, and my daughter who's seven, and my son who's four, and there's a lot of feral goats, and that's one of the things that we focus on hunting. And these kids were like, what are we going to kill? I can't wait till we kill this. I can't wait till we kill that. And then we got out there and this was the last full day of the class. We're sitting on the beach waiting for the sun to get lower in the sky so we don't get too sunburned while we're going to go out and collect some snails for dinner. And these goats came up on the rocks. I was like, okay, Carmen was like, okay, look over there, you guys. There's goats. Sarah, whoa. They look over and they see these goats. And I'm like, okay, everybody sit still, put your shoes on. Here's what we're going to do. When I say go, you're going to jump up and you're going to, I told them the strategy and I waited for the moment and, and I said, go. And we jumped up and we ran over and we, we, we didn't surround the goats, but we basically stayed in between the goats and the forest. So the ocean was on one side, the goats were in between us. And then the, the forest is on the other side. And we knew that if they got around us, we would lose our opportunity. So the goats kind of started running and we had fanned out so they couldn't get past us so easily. And some of them started slipping by, but there was one of the younger ones that we kind of just focused on. And we're kind of running back and forth and keeping this goat from getting around us. And it, it runs over to the corner. And this spot, it's, it's a rock. It's, it's this, we call it razor rock. It's really hard to get around on. It's very jumbled, very sharp rock. And it, it's right up against the ocean and it's like the rocks come up to the ocean and then it's like a 12 foot deep water right there. And this goat ran into the corner and then it jumped in the water. And as soon as it hit, it just sank to the bottom and then it popped back up and then it was swimming, but it was just struggling to swim and just struggling. So I'm looking back and I'm like shouting instructions to everybody. And I stripped down to my underwear and just jumped in the water after the goat, swam up to the goat and grabbed it. And I brought it onto shore 
And I brought it up onto shore and the look in these kids' eyes, they were like, what do we do now? Like, oh my God, what do we do? They were in shock. They were just, they, they didn't know what to do. And immediately my daughter was like, I'm going to kill it. And I was like, are you sure? You sure you want to do that? And she was like, yes, I have to do it. And I was like, I don't, are you, I mean, are you really sure? Cause she loves animals. She's like, you know, catching the turtles and raising them. She loves animals. And I was like, are you absolutely sure about this? And she's I have to do it, daddy. I have to do it. And so we brought this goat over and we laid it down and we're petting it and calming it down. And I'm explaining to my daughter, like, okay, you got to push really hard. So I think you're going to need help. And she's like, all right, but I'm going to hold the knife. So I said, okay. And so she held the knife in her hand and I held her hand and I was kind of explaining to her like, okay, we're going to calm it down. And then when I tell you, we're going to cut the throat, I'm going to push the knife in this way and we're going to pull it. We're going to cut its throat and it's going to bleed out pretty quickly. And we're calming this goat down and we're talking to it. And then I was like, okay, now, and we cut its throat and it started bleeding out. And immediately she just started bawling tears, like deeply affected. And so I was like, okay, you know, we, we, it's, it's, it's sputtering blood down. It's dying on the beach there and it's bleeding out. And the kids are like still in shock there. The other kids are just fully in shock. And my daughter's crying. <laughs> I was just like, this is, this is pretty intense for these kids right now. It's I'm like, starting to cry. <laughs> yeah, it's really, and it was, it was deeply intense. And I had experienced this before. So you know, I know how to deal with these emotions. And so I had to go back to where we were sitting and get all of our stuff because we just left it on the beach. We walked over, I walked over and I, I go to grab the stuff on the beach and I just kind of, I was by myself and I turned around and I'm facing the ocean and it was just like, wow, I just held my daughter's hand while she killed her first animal. It's like this amazing feeling of like, wow, I will, that's, that's unbelievable. Like my dad, (laughs) he never would have been able to give me that experience just because he didn't have that skill level. And I was like, you know, the proud dad moment, like, wow, like that was intense, unbelievable. And I go back over, I gather my stuff and I, and I was so thankful. I was just like, wow, this is really amazing. We're going to eat really well. We got to harvest one of these goats and these kids had this powerful experience. Like, you know, you can't even put words to it. Anyhow, I'm walked back over to where the kids were at. The, all the other kids were helping Carmen um, butcher the goat and skin it and gut it. And Eileen, my daughter was just sitting there kind of playing with some stones by herself. And I went over to her and I was like, hey, hey, how's it going? She was like, daddy, I'm, I'm, that was hard. <laughs> I said, daddy, that was really hard. And I was like, yeah, that, yes, yes, that was hard. It's hard to look into the animal's eyes and then kill it. And it's hard to do. I was like, but you know, something is going to die for us to live another day. You know, it might be a plant. It might be an animal, but something's going to die for us to live another day. Do you want to live another day? And she's like, well, yeah, of course I want to live another day. I was like, okay, so you got to remember if you're going to live another day, something's going to die. So it's better to kill it yourself and to know that it was done in a way that was thankful and appreciative. And she was like, well, you know what else, daddy, is uh, 
daddy, I was the only one who cried. She was like, yeah, you know, she was like, I, I, I don't know why nobody else cried. And I said, well, well, you know, nobody else killed the goat. Nobody else was part of that, that moment. She was like, yeah, but you know, it, it feels, it feels weird that I cried for, for that when nobody else needed to cry for that. And I said, you know, most people don't think anything of the meals that they eat. Literally just don't even think about it. Some people will sit down and say a prayer for, before they eat the meal, but most people don't actually think about the life of the animal that they're eating or the life of the plants that they're eating. And in that moment, I said, you know, you were thankful and connected and empathetic. I didn't use that word with her, <laughs> but you know, she felt empathy for that animal. If you study anything about, about our minds, about, about our minds and about any, any animal's mind, um, we have a part of our brain that can be empathetic, that can feel the pain of other animals. I was doing one of these trips one time and I was apologizing to these lobsters as I threw them down on the coals. My friend was like, man, those lobsters do not care one bit. Those lobsters will spear a fish, eat it alive, and not even think twice about it. And I said, you know what? Those lobsters can't be thankful. They don't have the ability to be thankful. They don't have the ability to be empathetic. They can't feel the pain of something else. So as humans, we have that ability. When we feel empathetic, when we feel thankful, we are exercising our birthright as human beings. When we ignore that, we're ignoring our birthright. When we just eat it and put it in our bodies and like it's just fuel for the machine and we let go of that, we're letting go what it means to be human. You know, we're talking about connection a lot today and like being connected to nature and what that means. Even if you don't believe in anything spiritual, anything outside of the physical, we have the ability to feel the pain of other things, not just to other human beings, other animals. We can do that. When we exercise that, it makes us more human. When we ignore that, it makes us less human. And we come from a world that ignores it all the time. It's just fuel for the machine. I'm just going to eat my next meal. It doesn't matter that something died to get to me. It doesn't matter. Of course it matters. If it doesn't matter to you, you're just saying I'm not human right now. But when you decide this matters to me, I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to take the time to care about this animal. I'm still going to kill it and eat it. I'm still going to take its life, right? I'm not going to stop from living. I'm going to continue to survive, but I'm going to make the effort to care. It makes us more human. We're exercising what we have in our minds. And animals that don't do that, it's not that they choose not to. They can't do it. It's not possible for them to do it, but we can. If we can, we should. I believe if we did that more often, we wouldn't kill each other so much. 
<laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, you're right. I mean, we're, one of our birthrights are things that makes us human. And I think actually this is something, I think a concept I first learned from from your wife, Carmen, is that, you know, you know, each species has its role and maybe our role here is as caretakers. We've been given an extra gift of intellect and empathy and all these things so that we, we don't just survive on a reflexive moment. We're evaluating what is the, the best way for the environment and, and our tribe and other things to survive. So we're, we're, we're you know, ideally in, 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 our, in our best, you know, our, our, we're, we're improving things as we go. That's kind of, you know, maybe what our, our, our place is here and why we have these other dimensions to us that maybe other animals don't. And I mean, it's funny because the whole, the hunting and, and um, you know, uh, kind of doing the killing yourself is like, that's where I, you know, that's definitely, uh, I know is an issue for me. And I think not, not, not in a judgmental way, just something I would struggle with, um, you know, because I didn't go through those experiences as a young, as a young person. Uh, I do intellectually, like in the abstract, appreciate that, you know, because again, because I can empathize, I can, I can visualize the goat there on the beach mm -hmm. calming down. I've, I've lived around animals, I've had pets. So I know these animals, th there's something to them. They're not just a bag of protein, you know, there's a personality, there's, you know, th you know, th there's something to them, you know, a soul, if you want to call it that. And I think, yeah, at some level, we appreciate that. And when you do the killing yourself, it, in some ways, it's a, you feel the sacrifice, mm. you know, that, you know, if it's a cheeseburger that you didn't see what someone else is doing the hard part for you, you know, and mm -hmm. we are so, and again, it's another part of the denatured is, you know, uh, when you do the killing yourself, I imagine, at least my, my hope would be that you're less likely to waste that you know you, you went this was painful for you emotionally and you saw the pain it was on the animal hopefully not much but it, it has a lot more value it adds it, it 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 i guess reminds you of the value of what you know what this is you know it's not just a meal that you can half finish and throw out you're going to try and preserve this and use as much um and so i yeah i think being again detached from the reality of our situation you know so many of us are uh so i i definitely appreciate that now it's kind of it's funny, we've been talking about all these things and I, I I would love to spend another time just talking about how it is raising kids, you know, because I mean, probably from day one, your kids have been raised around primitive skills and things mm -hmm. and that's, and, you know, just kind of how even you, you balance that with that kind of, you know, and, and then you mentioned homeschooling and it does in a lot of ways feel like a lot of people here uh, in, in the States, they homeschool because for religious reasons or whatever, but um you know, obviously the traditional school model is not giving people the, you know, exposure to these things. And so you having that opportunity to raise them and, uh, but I would, I'd be, like I said, I, I don't even know if we have time today, but I would love to at some point talk just about how do you balance that between, and I don't know, maybe your goal isn't to balance that. Like, how do they, are they comfortable with the outside world, you know, and, you know, how did, or, 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 or you know, and because there's this two parts, you know, of, of, of the modern circumstance and how do you, yeah. How do you do that? And what's it well, we're like? really we're really lucky in that um, because so on top of teaching primitive skills, we also have a rental property. We have cabins that we rent out, so we get we get people who are coming through the camp constantly, and so my kids are exposed to a lot of different people, and um, 
that's where we're able to provide them with that balance. Um, I, we try not to, um, explain, we try not to, to, to put things in a negative context that we don't appreciate, you know, like we're not, we're not the type of people who, I mean, we're not opposed to going into the city and going and seeing a show or something like that, but we're not the type of people who usually do that. Go outside and tell your mom about it. Speaking of children right there. <laughs> it's right there. It's right there. Sorry. Uh, speaking of kids. Um, yeah, we try really hard not to, to um, put things in negative terms. Um, we definitely try to limit the television and the, and the screen time and to limit those things. But basically I see it as I'm not going to spend a lot of time teaching my kids about those things. I'm comfortable allowing other people to do that. I feel like if, if we tried to control that urge of theirs to want to spend time watching stuff or, you know, to try to describe, I can't buddy, I can't bring it to your mom. She's right outside. Um, I feel like if I spent time trying to control their experience or, or put their experience into context that, um, that I would do more harm than good. I'd rather let other people take care of that. Um, but yeah, just them being around, not just, it would be one thing if we were, if we were by ourselves showing them primitive skills, but because people come to learn from us and people are passionate about learning from us, um, they see the, my kids see the value in that and they see it as something that's, that's has value outside of just mommy and daddy doing it. So we're really lucky in that regard. We don't, we don't have to explain to them why, why it's really cool. Um, and the other thing is, is that we're not, I wasn't telling her you have to kill this goat right now. I wasn't expecting her to even want to be a part of it. Like we had caught an iguana on that same trip. And I was saying to the kids, pin it down. And she was the first one who jumped onto it and she's pinning it down, but she's looking the other way, like holding down, like <sighs> breathing hard and closing her eyes. And she was clearly scared of it, but I wasn't saying you need to do this now. She was telling me that she needed to do it. She felt that, she felt that on her own. I didn't have to, I didn't have to force that, that on her. She was making, she was making a, a choice uh, in that moment. And I think too often as, as not just as parents, but also as, as teachers, um, we tend to want to get across the lesson that we feel, um, you know, we want, we want to make the person put it into a context that we would like them to experience it in. But I think it's really important, especially with these skills, to allow it to come about naturally. Um, some of the survival stuff, some of it sucks. <laughs> Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes you're super hungry. Sometimes you're super tired. Sometimes you're super uncomfortable. And that's okay. Like, that's totally okay. In our modern world, we're uncomfortable quite a bit, but it's not physical discomfort. It's emotional discomfort. It's emotional pain. You know, it's, it's, 
when I think about that, what we're talking about connection, um, what are we connected to or not connected to? Or how is it that we connect with the world around us? Well, we make a choice. We make a choice to be connected. We choose to say, I'm sorry, goat. I apologize. This is going to suck. And then cut its throat um, and eat it. (laughs) And that's a choice that we make. So because it's a choice, it's within us. It's within our grasp. It's within our ability. When we never make that choice, when we never put ourselves in a situation to be able to make that choice, the real disconnection is with a part of ourselves. We're choosing not to acknowledge that empathy. We're choosing not to acknowledge, hey, I care. I, I, I'd rather choose. When I, when I go to kill the goat, when I go to kill the animal before I eat it, I don't turn off that part of myself that cares. I turn that part on. I, I sink into that awareness because I want to feel it. I want to feel the, feel the animal's pain. I want to choose that because it's connecting me with myself. It's connecting me with the earth. If I choose not to, then I'm disconnecting from a part of myself. You know, I like to, I like to watch, I like to watch martial arts a lot. I like to watch mixed martial arts and, and um, I love a good fight. I love watching a, a good fight where they're really, they're just going at it and they're just beating the crap out of each other. It's just entertaining to watch, but I hate it when they don't, shake hands at the end. My favorite part is when you watch a really good fight and then they go to hug at the end and you could tell it's like, Oh my God, that was crazy. You were beating the crap out of me right there. (laughs) Like that totally sucked. But then afterwards, like those two guys, they might've hated each other, but when they finally get over that BS that's in their minds, it's like they're, they're connecting. They're connecting with something deeper. You know, unfortunately for them, they have to get the crap beat out of them to get, <laughs> to, get <laughs> to the point where they're, where they're connecting. But I love that moment where they're, where they're actually connecting. And, and I see a, a big parallel between what I, what teaching the primitive skills, what I do with my life and, and what they're doing in that moment. It's like, they know when they punch that guy, that's got to hurt because they're getting punched too. And there's no, there's no like, there's no beating around the bush there. Usually, even if they hated each other or they get punched in the face 50 times, it's like afterwards they're like, well, okay, that, yeah, okay, he really, he was better than I thought. You know, it's like we can only fool ourselves, but so many times. And too often in our modern world, we don't put ourselves in that uncomfortable position. We allow that ego to say, I got this. It's just, I got this and it's all good and I kick ass. You know, it's, a, it, it's important for us to be a little bit uncomfortable from time to time because when we're uncomfortable, it's easier to fall into that empathetic mode where we're like, oh, okay, now I understand why people don't like this. <laughs> um, yeah, see, I see a lot of, of connection between, between what, I, what I teach, the primitive skills and martial arts, because you put in the training and you put in the training and you put in the training. And the fight happens and it's like, you have to open a different part of your mind and you can't, you can't just keep thinking about it in the same way you've thought about it during your training. And it's the same with primitive skills. You can work on that fire making tool as much as you want, 
But when it's wet out or it's snotty out and it's time to start the fire and you need that fire to eat that night, it's like all the planning goes out the window and you just have to be listening in that moment. Okay, what does this piece of wood need? Do I need to go faster? Do I need to push harder? Do I need to go slower? It's like you can you can train all you want, but the experience is what makes the training valuable. You know, without that experience, it's it's you never learn. You never know what you learned during the training part without the experience part. Hmm. Yeah, and I do think kind of related with at least some fighters, because I mean, they're both going through a struggle together and they've come through it at the end. You know, granted, in their case, they're adversarial, so they're creating the struggle for each other. Hmm. But I mean, I've seen that even in, in the classes for a, a lot of people were, you know, at the end of class, so many people have bonded together. I mean, they're, they're making close friendships and bonds. You know, it's, it is like the last day of school where everybody's, you know, they've been through this experience uh, and they've all, you know, they've made it, seen it through together. And so it, it just gives you a deeper connection to the people who've been through that struggle with you. You know, even, even if it's the case that that person is literally the struggle you're facing, <laughs> they're, they're actually fighting you. Uh, I think there is that emotional, hey, we made it through and you have, because you've experienced it firsthand, you could admire what they've gone through, mm. you know, exactly. So you have to have some respect there, you know, mm. like, you know, it was bad for me. It, it, I know I've made it bad for you and we, but we're made, you know, so yeah, I, I think that at that level, that's one of the aspects of it where, yeah. And it is unfortunate where for whatever, sometimes because of the marketing or whatever, or, or things that, that doesn't happen between fighters, mm. you know, or, or whatever that, you know, that somehow it's, they've, uh, poison things enough that it, they, they don't get to have that positive connection out of it. Um, but so often yeah, you're right that, you know, once, once the conflict is over and it's resolved, <laughs> you know, or whatever that, you know, they, 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 then you can look at the other aspects of it, you know, and, and it's just, uh, that's yeah. that, that's that type two fun, right. Where it's <laughs> kind of sucks at the time, but then afterwards you're like, that was awesome. I'm sure that's how, what it has to be when you're locked in a cage with somebody and fighting is like, it kind of sucks when you're getting punched in the face, but then when it's over, it's like, that was awesome in that kind of way that it sucks, but it was awesome. <laughs> still at the same time. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, you, you never know what you're going to be interested in, in life. And then it's like, why do I like watching two people punch each other and kick each other and like smash each other and contort each other? And I guess it's just because I, I appreciate that, that uh, what our minds are capable of. Because you know that it's not, there's part of your mind, it's like when you get punched, it's like, there's part of your mind that's like, this is bad. It's like, this is, this is bad for us. This is not good. Um, but our minds are able to overcome that. And we're able to work through all of that. It's, it, it's, really, it's really amazing to see it. Um, it's funny because I, I don't, she's not around. Usually I think my wife just shakes her head when I'm watching fights. It's like, why do you want to watch these two people just bloody each other like this? And I'm like, it's like primitive skills. <laughs> she's like, no, it's not. It's not at all like primitive skills, but it is in that sometimes you're really cold or really hungry or really tired or really uncomfortable. And sometimes you're all of those things at the same time but then you get the fire or you catch the animal or you finish the shelter. And it's like this amazing sense 
of accomplishment and not just of accomplishment, but it really brings it back to that sense of connection. Like, whoa, it really sucked, but I learned so much about it and I earned that fire and that fire kept me warm. And, you know, it's, again, it's, it's not necessarily just that I'm connecting with that skill in the moment. It's I'm connecting with myself. And it's like, like you're saying, it's like we've gone through something together. It's like you, you've gone through an experience with this skill. I had to be uncomfortable before I could see how important it was to start the fire. You know, I had to be super cold before I could really understand what it means to be warm in this shelter. So it's, it's all of these, all these things we're talking about is the reason why I connect so deeply with these, with these skills, because it, because it connects me with my, with a part of myself that I didn't even know was there. Well, like I said, I could, I could keep picking your brain forever. Honestly, keep going on. I feel like we just scratched the surface on stuff, but yeah. uh, um, well, you know, and I'm really glad you brought up the classes because I definitely hopefully want to promote your school a little bit. I know, um, you know, and get the word out there for that. So, and I definitely, like I said, I really appreciated all your, your, your teaching at the classes um, and also kind of your candor. I think a lot of times, uh, you know, in that environment, you kind of mentioned the spirituality is sometimes people, you could bring it back down to earth in a kind of a respectful way, but it's just like, oh, that's right. I'm not the only one who's maybe having these thoughts or, you know, that, you know, I, uh, these maybe, uh, you know, able to laugh at a little, a little bit. I think um, there was one time when you just kind of made a vague grandfather joke, you know, which was like, oh, you know, like it was, but it, it was, it was, you know, it was a very, uh, it was kind of a loving joke, but it was still just kind of poking fun at some of the cliches of the, of the group there. And it was just kind of very uh, refreshing and kind of, you know, you know, brought it back down to earth and said, Oh, you know, I can still be myself and be a real person and still do these things that I don't have to, you know, uh, like I said, become some type of a, a guru or whatever. It's like, you can be a real person, a person, you know, who can laugh at, at yourself and at these things, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, and so I appreciate that. And I said, really enjoyed you and Carmen's instruction. And so super glad to be able to have this conversation with you. Uh, again, like I said, it's hard for me to want to stop. I, I could go on for a while, but I want to be respectful of your time too. Yeah. And I did want to. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Please. I was just going to say, I do want at some point, like on my bucket list is surfing. And so I don't know somehow if I can tie that in with coming down. Well, if for you lesson, come, I will teach you how to surf. I will do it. I'm not going to be the best instructor in the world but I'm getting better. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking, well, I immediately, like, so I thought about that and then I thought immediately about how I only lasted about 10 seconds on the log. <laughs> Scout, okay, I like, I literally had, I think the worst, like the shortest amount of time on that I took one step buckled and fell. And I, it was funny. Um, yeah, I definitely underperformed what I thought I was going well, to do. You know what, you know, what was funny about that? I was talking the other night with Carmen, like, Hey, I got this, we got this podcast we're going to do. And she was like, Oh, who's that with? And I was like, Joe from the class. And she's like, okay, well, which one is he? And I'm describing you. And she's like, was it this guy? And I, I actually, I described you by the insult that I gave when you were on the log. <laughs> she was like, Oh, I know who that, I know exactly who that guy is. <laughs> That's that was a good one too. You had you have a gift for that because I'm like I, I I did hear it right as I was falling and I'm like ah oh, damn really because yeah. <laughs> you're like the guys at the office and I'm like that's what I give off the office workers 
Nice. Hey, well, you know, you gave me that. You gave me that and I ran with it. We had a conversation and there's a lot that goes into that moment on the log. It's funny. I was talking with Tom about it and he's like, you have a really good gift for that. I was like, what, for making fun of people? And he was like, yeah, I guess so. And I was like, oh, great. But, you know, when I did that, I trained for that log for months. I, where I was living at at the time, <clears throat> that time in between classes, where I was living at, there was a train tracks and the house that we were at was right next to the train tracks. And then there was a field about, about a mile, a little bit more than a mile away from the house. And I walked down that train tracks. I'd walk towards the field with down the train tracks with my eyes open. <clears throat> I do my running and my stalking practice in the field. And then I would put the blindfold on and I'd walk back. I walked the entire, entire mile plus on the train tracks. The last three or four times I did it, I walked without falling once for a mile and I couldn't make it across that log. And it, there's just something about everybody's watching you. Well, that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh man. I it, was working on my balance too. I have like these different like exercises on one leg and I was like, I'm going to be as ready as I can be. Cause I know, and, and well, I'll say this is that I was able to get across the log later that week when it was on a lunch break, when no one was around, mm -hmm. then it was it. But the minute the crowd was there, like, like, and it, like I said, it, was, it was completely a mind thing. I mean, you know, like my, I just, yeah, I was just, the, it was impressive how easily that affected me. <laughs> like I couldn't. It pissed me off so bad when I fell off that log during the class. I was so angry. I, you know, I didn't really care. I was like, it doesn't matter to me if the group doesn't see me do it all that. But I, I was so determined, like, I have to do this. I have to do this. And the instructors at the time, like there was one in particular who was teaching there who what <clears throat> he was pretty mean like he 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 was he would make fun of you and you could tell that he actually meant it sometimes <laughs> and he would make fun of me a lot during classes leaning leading up to that like even aside from that that moment which is designed like i'm supposed to be making fun of you that's my job in that moment is to make fun of you because it makes it harder to cross the log but anyway this guy, he'd been making fun of me for like years. And I definitely gave him back some insultation too. It's not like I was totally innocent. They didn't say a word to me. Nobody said anything. Literally, it was just dead silent. And I think that screwed me up more than anything because I was like expecting it, you know, like, what are they going to say? They're going to say this. They're going to say that. And I was just like, they didn't uh, piss me off so bad. I was so, <laughs> so upset about that. Well, that could be a job for Tony, honestly, if we got him into the, at some point. He's very yeah. much like, but he definitely. Well, he made fun are. of my hair immediately. <laughs> yeah, he didn't yeah. hesitate. I don't know this guy, but I'm going to attack. <laughs> That's great. That's great. It's too bad he's not here. I'd be making fun of him a little. It's probably good he's not here, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, no, super cool. Like I said, yeah, I, ho I hope someday in the future we can do this again. Like I said, I've got a, a million more questions. And like I said, hopefully if it can be some benefit to you and Carmen and your school down there. Uh, mm -hmm. I do hope to go down there sometime. That would be awesome. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that the wife would, like I said, she, she, she's kind of, uh, actually, I think she'd love it once she went to like the tracker school, but it's kind of that getting out there at first. If when she I said, likes oh, the Caribbean, she could just hang out while we do the fun stuff. And then she might see how fun the fun stuff is. I think so. I think the Caribbean is an extra bonus. Although, like I said, the minute, I honestly think she would be, she has this thing where 
I, I have whatever interest, I, whatever things I'm doing, you know, I kind of get in it, but I, 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 I'm kind of cautious. I'm hold back, but she is the minute she gets in, then she's a hundred percent. Like, you know, cause I could see her like running with it and like, okay, I'm going to be a caretaker here, you know, and whatever. like once she did it, I'm like, no, no, who, you know, take some baby steps first, you know, but like after her first day, she would just be all over it. So, well, maybe one day we'll come to you. We have a couple of friends who are in the Midwest area and a, close friend from here who lives in Chicago now. And we had talked about, you know, we always are talking to people about potentially traveling to them to teach, which is another thing that we do for anybody who's listening and interested in learning this stuff. Um, We definitely have traveled before for classes and we'll do that again. Um, So yeah, I know there's people who want to be able to learn, but don't necessarily want to be, or don't have the ability to, to travel. Um, so that is something that we've done in the past and something we would definitely do uh, in the future as well. Well, good. I'm glad you got to mention that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Well, say hello to Carmen for me. Um, yeah, sorry she couldn't show up, but she's she's working while I get to just blab here, which <laughs> she says I'm good at. So that's good. <laughs> but no, it was a really great conversation. Again, thank you for making the time. And hopefully, like I said, this will draw some attention to your school, but it was, it was a great conversation. And I'm always happy to have tracker people on here, uh, mm-hmm. kind of crossing the worlds between that and my martial arts background mm-hmm. and with Tony's group. So um, I know there's a lot of people out there who are, it's funny how many martial arts people are aware of and or interested in the tracker thing. There's mm-hmm. definitely, well, I mean, it, I saw in the beginning, what is it, some wrestling there? It's, I used to wrestle in high school. I loved it. I, I love that. I love that, that, not necessarily the competitive aspect of, of martial arts, but, but um, the mindset that I get into. It, it actually, just as I'm talking about it, it made me think about, um, I remember when I started wrestling, um, it's like the first three or four matches or so, um, it was like, I didn't do anything. It was like, I was too scared to do anything. And it's kind of the same with the, with the hunting and the fishing. Like I, one of the, not the fishing so much as the hunting, but um, the, with the spear fishing where it's more like hunting. It's like, I didn't grow up with this stuff. Like nobody taught me how to hunt. Nobody in my family hunted that I knew. Nobody did any of these primitive skills things at all. Nobody taught me this until I learned it from somebody else. Then when it was time to kill the, the animal, it was really hard. And I just had to switch to a different space of my mind to a different aspect of, of myself. And I felt like it was the same with, with wrestling. It was like, I didn't do anything because I was afraid of what it meant to do it. And then all of a sudden it was what, however many matches in, I've had enough experience where I'm like, all I have to do is do this and that and that. And Oh, okay. I pinned him. Okay. It's, it's done. That was easy. Actually. Once I, once I used that different aspect of myself and I love that about martial arts that, that um yeah it's not i I don't think it's the competition part of it but it's it's the challenge within the competition it's the challenge of oh this person is doing this right now and i have to counter it with with this or with that and i love that that mind space that it puts you in where you're where you're not necessarily it's it's kind of like reacting but it's more like it's more like dancing where you're reacting, but you're also trying to get the partner, your adversary to move in a certain way so that you can move in a certain way. And I just, I love that, that aspect about martial arts. So next time we talk, we got to, why well, it'd be better if, 
if your if your partner is here so he would bring it back to the martial arts i, I love oh, that. yeah absolutely but yeah for sure i mean and again yeah it's, it's a very it's it's a very primitive experience uh, it's one of the most primitive right the primitive struggle and you have to be in the moment you know you have to be in the moment and you have to be maybe thinking one or two steps ahead so there's a lot of things that, that emotionally i mean so much of any sports but especially something like a combat sport or martial mm. art ha is mental yeah it's, you know? it's the original if we're talking about primitive skills ancient skills it's the most ancient form of sport i mean people have wrestled and fought for sport for i mean hundreds of thousands of years people have done that so I, that's that's a primitive skill as well yeah and animals tussle i mean you see little animals playing and, and rolling around i mean yeah, that, play that's fighting. I mean, yeah totally and that's exactly what it is people think oh they're playing well they're actually learning to kill right now <laughs> so that's like you know we i i love that i i love that i feel like it's another core skill that martial arts is is really connected to to our to our primitive past it is it's a human body skill i mean it's just another part of being comfortable with your body and being comfortable with other people you know it's and, and yeah it's part of our legacy is animals on this planet and you know it's, it's just struggles a part of it and, um, and any human being could watch somebody hunting and know what was going on even if you didn't have experience with it any human being across cultures could see two people fighting and know exactly what's going on <laughs> and if it wasn't a real fight let's say a wrestling match for instance where it's they're not trying to punch or kick or anything like there's still two people you, you're gonna you know what that is no matter what culture you immediately know what it is and, and you know, what are those mirror neurons they say when the scientists say where it's like you see that happening and you immediately envision yourself like, how would I deal with that? Oh, I would think I would grab his leg and pull it this way. Or I think I would try to do an, a wrist lock there and push him to the side, whatever it is. You know, it's like we can we connect to that very easily. Very true. Yeah, we have to get you talking with Tony. I think that would be a great uh, be fun. conversation. Yeah, I could for be sure. fun of him for being from Cleveland. It'd be great. <laughs> I was waiting. Yeah. He's, I think that's definitely an issue for him. He, he knows the reputation. And so he's, he's very much a Cleveland apologist and I, I've been there with him. It's a great town, but yeah, you know, the mistake by the lake, as they call it. <laughs> exactly. Oh, thank you. You said it before I did. <laughs> all right. Well, like have a great rest of the day. Thank you again for making all this time. It was an awesome conversation. Um, yeah. And I hope to see you at tracker school again. If not, I'll, I, I hope to be down by your place at some point because it, it sounds awesome. Yeah. And, you know, for anybody listening who's like interested in learning this stuff, there's so many schools all over the place. It doesn't it doesn't have to be coming with us at all. I appreciate that you give us the outlet. Um, again, our, our website is Caribbean Earth Skills. Or if you just want a vacation and want to be able to blab to us while you're on vacation here, it's Mount Victory Camp is is our other website. So that's the Mount Victory Camp is the is our uh, rental property and Caribbean Earth Skills is our um, is the the school that that we run. But um, yeah, if anybody's interested, like jump into that interest because it's a lifelong thing. I'll never master it. I'll always be an apprentice to this, and so just might as well get started now. Hmm. All right. Well, great talking to you. Um, yeah, and like I said, have a great rest of your day. And. Yep. Uh, yeah, this is signing off for now. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Joe. Thank you.